Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Culture Wars. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today uh, what I want to do is something a little bit different. Uh, one of the things that I want to do on this podcast uh, week by week is sort of help all of you who are kind enough to listen, I get a much deeper understanding of how we got to this place culturally. And by, uh, what I mean by this place, we're going to be taking a look at Canada. We're going to be taking a close look at the United States, those being the two countries I have citizenship in, uh, and as well as uh, as Western Europe and then, of course, other, other countries as they pertain to the pro-life and pro-family movement. And in order to really discuss uh, Canada... Uh, and to kind of talk about how we got from a, a country with, with Judeo-Christian values uh, to a country that is the only democracy in the West with no abortion laws whatsoever, and one of the only countries with no abortion laws, and, and from a country that's far more extreme even than the European and the American countries in terms of the fact that bringing up any socially conservative view is almost immediately hammered down by anybody. Uh, Canadian social conservatives are uh, sort of particular in that we have basically no representation at all. Um, even our genuinely socially conservative politicians like uh, Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta, who's a traditionalist Catholic, or uh, uh, conservative leader Andrew Scheer, even those that would hold socially conservative values themselves spend a great amount of time swearing up and down that they will do nothing to act on those convictions no matter what. And so how did we get uh, from a country where people not only openly declared these values but defended them in the political arena uh, to a country where these things uh, cannot even be discussed? And in fact, the left-wing parties frequently use social conservative values that actually have a, a substantial amount of support in the Canadian public, especially among more traditionally-minded new Canadians, um, as, as a weapon against conservatives. They sort of accuse conservatives of being conservative, and then the conservatives scurry to say that they aren't conservative. And so in order to have a discussion on how we got to this place, I figured I would interview uh, best-selling Canadian author William Gardner. And just to give you a bit of his background, he showed up for his first year at McGill University in the fall of 1959, and he had dreams of trying to make the 1964 Canadian Olympic team in the decathlon. He was told he was too small, so he abandoned his track coach, and eventually he uh, won the silver medal in the decathlon at the Pan Am Games in Brazil in 63, and then he competed in the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo, where he set a Commonwealth record. Then he lived in Japan for six months. He ended up at Stanford University, where he earned a Ph.D. in English literature. And along the way, he competed in the Commonwealth Games in 1966 in Jamaica, and then again in 1970 in Edinburgh in the 400-meter hurdle events. Uh, so he then taught at, at York University in Toronto for several years. Um, but when his dad asked him to help run the family business, he left teaching, and then he worked there for a while. But the reason I wanted to interview him is because of the books he wrote. And so he first discovered, apparently, that he could write books in 1988. And his passion was for the world of ideas, especially moral and political ideas. And so since then, he's published a number of best-selling books. His first was The Trouble with Canada, published in 1990, which was an attack on Canada's creeping statism and growing government, uh, which he says, uh, he says the book caused a national uproar and sold over 60,000 copies, hitting number one in Canada 
only four months after its release. This was followed up by a book called The War Against the Family from Stoddart Publishers in 1993, which was another blockbuster that sealed his reputation as a keen-eyed critic of social and moral breakdown in the West. He has more recent works as well. Canada's Founding Debates, which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2003. The Book of Absolutes, published by McGill Queens in 2008. The Trouble with Canada Still, and then his latest, The Great Divide, Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never Ever Agree, published by Encounter Books in New York in 2015. Bill now describes himself as a libertarian in economic matters and a Burkean conservative in social matters. In that way, I find him very similar to the British commentator Peter Hitchens. And so it's no surprise that throughout his career, he's been a bit of a lightning rod for the left. He's appeared on hundreds of radio and TV shows to discuss his views. And he's also kept pretty active as uh, an athlete, considering his Olympic record and his record in the Pan Am Games. This isn't surprising. And so I really wanted just to talk to Bill Gardner and find out what he thought about how Canada went from the country it once was to the country that it is today. And he was kind enough to agree to come on and have this discussion with me. And so I thought that, uh, you know, sort of to frame the discussions that we're going to be having about Canada in the podcast in weeks to come, it would be good to first have a discussion sort of setting the stage with one of Canada's most keen-eyed critics and longtime residents. Having written uh, as a true conservative for the last 30 or 40 years, my answer would be that I feel like a man who's been standing on a rock in a leftward drifting sea. Right. <laughs> and in the distance, I can see ships uh, drifting to the left, and I can hear voices, and and I hear them saying, look, look, there's a man out there drifting to the right. <laughs> right. But of course, I haven't moved. Yeah. So the, country, the country's moved a great deal, and this has brought home to me whenever I succumb to the temptation to open the War Against the Family book that I wrote in 1993, where I warned Canadians that one day we would be we would be legalizing things like gay marriage and stuff like that, and and even liberals uh, told me that was a radical thing to say at the time. Right. Well, and, and now you see liberals basically accusing conservatives of various phobias for opposing things the liberals opposed 10, 15 years ago at, at a maximum. Yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So it's it's changed a lot in 30 years. So just to give our, our, our listeners sort of an idea of, of your body of work, like uh, the, the, the two books that I've, I've referenced the most would be your book, The War on the Family and then The Trouble with Canada. So maybe just give our listeners a bit of a, a of the lay of the land for for a Canadian who's um, you know trying to make sense of our politics or for for an outsider looking in. Can you give us an idea of 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 uh, how in your mind Canada got to this place, and then we can start talking about the uh, lovely state of current politics from there. Uh, sure. Well, how did Canada get to where we are today is a is a very large question, which I. I've tried to answer in a book I published recently with a New York publisher called The Great Divide. The subtitle of the book is Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never, Ever Agree, which sounds like a negative thing to say, and it is in a way, but the purpose of that book uh, really was to get at the underlying reasons 
which would answer the question you just asked me. And I, I should start responding by giving you another sort of image or metaphor here. I think of a man who's standing on the street on a beautiful day. He's looking at all the beautiful buildings around him and all the rest of it. And suddenly a huge gash opens in the street and the buildings start shaking and crumbling. And he says, oh, my gosh, it's an earthquake. But, of course, it's not an earthquake. It's the consequences of the earthquake. The actual earthquake is way underground, and he doesn't see it. It's the job of the seismologist to explain to him what those seismological and tectonic forces are that are causing the rubble at the surface. Right. And in my book, The Great Divide, I argue that there's ideological rubble, excuse me, ideological forces way beneath the surfaces that most of us don't see. And that's what's causing the political and moral rubble at the surface. And the purpose of the Great Divide is to show people what those ideological forces are. And when you really spell them out, which this book does chapter by chapter, and I think your readers should know that at the end of each chapter, there's a kind of table where they can test themselves and see how liberal or how conservative they really are. Okay. And when they do look at these tables, what they're going to realize is that the present subtitle, Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never Ever Agree, becomes quite clear. And that's because they take such rigidly opposed uh, positions on fundamental issues. I'll just give you an example of one, which would be, let's say, the concept of human nature. The typical modern liberal would argue that human nature is malleable. And that the job of political policy and of legislation is to change human nature. In other words, to modify human nature by through the laws and through public policies and to create the good society thereby. Uh, the argument of the, of the true conservative, and I use the word true conservative because most conservatives today are not true conservatives. They're just a modified form of libertarian or a fiscal conservative you know, worried about debt and taxes, and that's about it. But uh, the true conservative, of course, is worried about a lot more than that. And one of the things he worries about deeply is uh, human nature and how we should build a polity uh, to to accommodate uh, human nature, which fundamentally never changes. Right. So you, can, so you can see there's a huge gap between these two sides, which is why they will never agree. The uh, modern liberal wants to uh, adjust human nature by law. And um, and the true conservative says, on the contrary, the laws should be adapted to human nature as it is, because it's really universal and eternal. And it's been here forever. Uh, for example, just to say that that the human being is a flawed creation is a, is a position that the true conservative would take. And uh, because no human being can ever be perfect, Obviously, society can never be perfect. And the liberal box at that and says, on the contrary, human beings are malleable and we need to create the perfect society here on Earth. Uh, part, of the, part of the backstory to that, of course, is that the modern liberal has completely rejected religion and the morality which is sourced in religion. And so he's not interested in waiting around for the kingdom of heaven after this life. He wants to create it here on Earth. Which, which is what has spawned all the huge totalitarian movements of the 20th century uh, in the West. So in terms of like, 
Canada specifically, um, how then, wh- where did that earthquake start? If, if what we're seeing right now is the result of an earthquake far below the surface, and you had to pinpoint, um, even chronologically, uh, what started to shift the landscape um, that brought us to the country that we live in today, what would you say that earthquake was, and where would you say it originated? Well, I think we have to go back to the early part of the 20th century, certainly uh, to the post-war period, which which is where we find a great number of huge differences between the way we are today and the way we were then. Let let me just give you a few a few examples now that you've asked. You're going to get me on a roll here. <laughs> For example, look at the quest, the concept of the self. You know, um, in the 1950s, say post-war, would have been oriented around the question of self-discipline and uh, self-reliance and the obligation to fulfill one's duties to one's country, to one's children, to one's parents, to one's neighbor, and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I remember that. I was only 10 then, but that was the, the emphasis. And today, the notion of the self is quite different. It's more focused on the idea of not self-discipline, but on self-gratification. Not self-reliance, but self-expression. Right. And and no longer the question of obligations and duties, but the whole idea of self-esteem, <laughs> which is a, a ridiculous notion, of course, because we are esteemed by others when we do estimable things. The idea of running around all over the place telling everybody how much we esteem ourselves is is a gross deformation of the word itself. And then uh, here's another issue, which was very different then than it is today. For example, the ideal of uh, liberty versus e- equality. Uh, in those days, the foundation of our society and of our of our uh, Canadian democracy, I say Canadian because it's different form of democracy than, say, the American Republican form, but the idea was that we should have liberty under the law, and otherwise everyone is free. It was a starting line philosophy, and the idea was we want you all to be on the same starting line insofar as possible, but you get to the finish line by your own lights and by your own efforts and your own work and honesty and all the rest of it. Uh, But the view today is quite different. The foundation of our Democracy has shifted from liberty to a foundation of equality. So now the idea is a finish line philosophy. We want to get everyone more or less to the same finish line. And we're going to do that with all sorts of laws and social policies and affirmative action and call it what you want, which gives us equality for all under different laws as opposed to liberty for all under the same laws. Now, that's a radically different kind of society than what we had 70 years ago. So which prime minister do you think initiated this earthquake? Well, I think it it started a long time ago, but the one who really gave it a kickstart was the father of our present prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. And uh, you mentioned my first book, The Trouble with Canada, which I'm proud to say became number one in Canada about four months after it was published in 1990. But about 20 years later... In 2010, I asked myself, what had changed? So I redid the book and updated it and kind of rewrote the whole thing and published it as the trouble, a book called The Trouble with Canada Still. 
And I recommend it to your listeners because if you ever wanted a cover-to-cover overview of, of what has happened to our country in that uh, time period since Pierre Trudeau forward to, well, that book was published in 2010, you'll get into that book. It's I think it's quite an education and an awful eye-opener on what I call the regime change that Canada has undergone in that period. And I was just outlining to you some of those kinds of changes. Um, so an, an interesting thought experiment here would be, was there a difference in the reaction to your first book, The Trouble with Canada, and The Trouble with Canada Still? Well, the second book, you know, and I didn't expect it to be a bestseller like the first one, although uh, the publisher was Key Porter Books, uh, and they published 5,000 copies, and they sold out in a couple of months. And then, believe me, it wasn't my fault, Key Porter went bankrupt. Now, this itself is an interesting story. I've had two major publishers. The first one was, I mean, major Canadian publishers. The first one was Stoddard Publishing, which was a division of General Books, uh, General Publishing, which was then the largest uh, trade publisher in Canada in 1990. And um, they did five or six books of mine, and then they went bankrupt. And uh, okay. it's quite interesting because I had a conversation with Jack Stoddard at the time, and I said, Jack, you're up to your up to your shoulders in government and government subsidies and this and that, and it's it's going to mess you around in the end. And and of course it did. There were other things at play, but you know what happened was with changes of governments. Well, we can't give you the X hundreds of thousands we gave you last year. It's going to have to be half. You know whatever. So. You know, Canadian publishing, Canadian editing, Canadian book design, Canadian distribution, everything having to do with the arts in Canada is in some way subsidized by government. In other words, it's say the subtext here is that all the arts in Canada have been socialized one way or the other. In fact, I remember going to, when my book became a bestseller, I was invited to a huge dinner put on by the whatever it was at the time, the Publishers Association of Canada or something like that, at the major hotel in Toronto. There were about 400 people there. And uh, I swear, I was the only one in the room who hadn't taken a penny from the government for my uh, book, The Trouble with Canada, uh, which, as I say, got the number one all by itself with no help from anybody. And um, Stoddard actually came to me and said, oh, look, we get grants from the Canadian government. We're supposed to put a little thank you statement in your book. And I said, over my dead body. I said, (laughs) one of the troubles with Canada is that you're taking money from the government for books like this. If you want money for this book to help you, I said, I'll give it to you myself. But I refuse to take government money. And I have to tell you, for anybody listening who has an original copy of that book, I think that's one of the reasons why it's probably worth 10 times today what it was then, because it's the only book in Canada published in the last 50 years that does not have that, you know, thanks to the Canada Council stuff inside the cover. <laughs> okay, I, I did not realize that. I think I do have the old copy on my shelf. Well, you look, you you won't find that statement, you see. Now, everybody in that room, everybody, the, the children's uh, book designers, you know, people that draw the little cute little pictures, the the layout people, the the editors, everybody at the table, at every table in the room had their hands out. I mean, I was just embarrassed and shocked to see it. So when you look 
at like so let's say the last uh, t- 25 years um when you made these predictions in your book uh the war on the family give us a summary of the predictions that you've seen happen since your book came out well for example one of the things that i argued in in that book because uh, i actually had at least two chapters on the rise of of the sort of homosexual agenda one of the things i argued in the book was that one day canada would legalize gay marriage and even liberals at the time scorned me for that and criticized me publicly and said, look, he's making these radical statements, typical of a conservative writer. And these were liberals, you know, who didn't believe it. And in fact, our own government, of course, voted against it twice and then finally caved in and voted for it. So, you know, that was like seven or eight years ago. So here we are. That's just one example of one of the things the book was decrying and and arguing, and uh, you know, I still argue against uh, the whole idea of of gay marriage. I think it has been disaster for the conception of regular marriage, traditional marriage, as we always knew it until that time. I remember having a debate with a homosexual man on television one time, and he said, "Well, what's your problem? There are so few people who want to get gays who want to get married anyway." You know, X number of thousands of them, you know, two or three thousand, he he said at the time. And I said, well, it's a question of the symbolic value of the institution of marriage that we uphold as a people for our children and for the future of our country. And, and, And I said, the only reason that I think government should be involved in marriage in the first place is because of the need for the state to survive. And the only way it can survive is through procreation. And the only way you can have procreation is by joining uh, a male and a female sexually, uh, because you can't join two penises and you can't join two vaginas. So it's ridiculous to talk about conjugality with with uh, homosexuals. You can respect them all you want for everything they do in their lives, but you can't respect that idea because it's false. And so the fellow looks at me and he says, well... There's so few of us, I don't see why it would be a problem. I said, like I said, it's a symbolic value. Do you know what the Victoria Cross is? He says, yes. I said, well, it's given to Canadian heroes for valor in the field of battle. I said, all you have to do is give it to one coward to ruin it. And he looked at me and he said, that's right. And um, since then, by the way, I've had quite a bit of correspondence from homosexual writers who said to me, I agree with you. I don't think it should have been done. I doubt you would get invited to uh, present that point of view on TV today. No, I wouldn't today. And in fact, I would say, well, you asked the question about what changes we have seen. Yeah. There's an, there's another one. We are a more frightened country than we ever used to be. We are afraid of open debate and honest and frank debate. We're afraid to express our ideas, so we go quiet. We live in a frightened society. And in The Great Divide, I start my first chapter with that comment that when I was a young man— if you sat around the dinner table, say it was an 18, 20-year-old man, and I sat around the dinner table with elders and friends and so on, and they asked a question, you were expected to answer the question. And and you you may have been chastised or corrected for the wrong answer or for faulty logic, but you never would have been shouted at or scorned or made to feel made to feel like you were some kind of outcast of society uh, for expressing your opinion. It would have been welcomed. 
But it, it seems like that's been a fairly effective tactic, has it not? When 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 same-sex marriage, for example, was legalized, um, a, a very small minority of Canadians actually supported it or cared about it at all. Now those numbers seem to have flipped, and it's a solid 60% or more of Canadians who support it. So do you think that the left uses the tactic of silencing people and using censorship because it actually does eliminate the ability of their ideological opponents to persuasively present their point of view. Oh, yes. Well, that's the situation we have now. I mean, how many times have you have you gone to a dinner party where you may not have known everybody at the table and you self-censor? There's lots of things you're not going to bring up <laughs> as, as, as topics of conversation. So conversation centers around um, things that are, you know, useless topics, things that nobody really cares about. And it's a great crashing bore uh, because we are a frightened people now. Um, and, and we have, as a country, we have made sure that we would end up with a frightened people because we have so-called human rights tribunals. We find people huge sums of money if they, you know, take a misstep, uh, you know, go in the wrong direction in terms of expressing their views. So, and uh, we play with the idea of free speech, but we don't really mean it. No, one of the things that, that I've been frustrated by, and then I'd like to, to, to get your take on it, is what we seem to have uh, in Canada is a, a very muscular progressive movement that actually believes in its own ideals, isn't very good at defining them without using vague, meaningless buzzwords, but certainly does believe in the righteousness of their own cause. On the flip side, they have virtually no ideological opponents. Um, conservatives, for example, regardless of whether we're talking about the federal or a provincial party, generally seem to conserve the consensus that they get handed, as opposed to making any real meaningful steps um, to, to conserve anything that the liberals have destroyed. So, uh, for example, uh, if you take a look at Alberta, the NDP uh, had four years, and man, did they make hay while the sun shone. Um, they used those four years to ramrod as much policy change as they possibly could through the legislature. Trudeau's liberals are, are doing a very similar thing because they know that the Canadian conservatives are generally so cowed uh, by social media and by accusations of various phobias that most of their agenda will end up remaining in place, that it will not get repealed. Um, and at most will not get enforced or maybe get blunted a little bit. And then when they reachieve power, they can sort of pick up where they left off. And so for ideological conservatives in Canada, it often feels like a conservative government is actually just um, applying the brakes or pressing pause as opposed to any return to genuine ideological diversity. Well, that was a lot. Uh, I'm not sure what your question is, but I, I think I understand you to be saying that uh, the conservative, what I call the true conservative position. When I say true conservative, I'm talking about the roots of conservatism, which began with David Hume and Edmund Burke and have traveled up to our own day, but have bifurcated. In Canada, we see it clearly with so-called fiscal conservatives and social conservatives. I had this discussion yesterday with a, someone who emailed me about this, lamenting the fact that there wasn't enough discussion of social, about social conservatism. And I said, well, all true conservatives are inherently social because their opening position is that the rights and freedoms and traditions and institutions of society are generally, if not always, prior to those of the individual. The individual is important. Of course, we talk about individual rights all the time. 
but so is society. And if if we don't watch ourselves as a people, we end up having no society at all, no concepts of society and nothing to defend that we would call a social right or a social freedom. Let me give you an example. When I was a young man, if, this is only in the, when, like when I started to vote in the 60s, um, if someone talked about, you know, how do you feel about voting in a democracy, the answer would have been something like, well, I have to make a decision. Like what? Well, I have to decide whether I should vote for X or Y, because X is what I want personally, but Y is what I think would be better for the country. And you know what? I think I'm going to vote for Y, because I can live without X. But the country's not going to do well without Y. So I'm going to vote Y. And, and that was a real conversation in, in my youth. And I don't think it is today. No one actually takes themselves through that exercise. No one says, you know, this is what I want, but would it be good for the country as a whole? And therefore, should I resist, you know, and vote otherwise? Instead, what they say is, uh, I'm going to vote X because that's what I want. And what a democracy ought to be in the modern mind now is it's just the outcome of, it's the sum of, it's the aggregate of all these individual wills. There is no concept of the good of society as a whole that anybody's entertaining. Like that's been lost. And I think it's a great shame. And one of the reasons I write my books as what I call a true conservative who does have that concern foremost in mind is because I like, I think as a people, we should restore that concern. Because if we're not voting for the good of all the people, what do we, what do we have a democracy for in the first place? Is it just to please ourselves as individuals? And if so, is that really wise? Well, when you look at, at Canadian politics today, um, I guess what I was getting at when I was, I was looking at uh, the death of, of true conservatism in a lot of ways, because I think that even a lot of Canadian conservatives have, have sort of fundamentally accepted the premises of the left, which is why we lose the argument. Um, do, are there any politicians? No, excuse, that, me, excuse me for interrupting, but that's because they've become, they become left-leaning conservatives themselves. Right, right. So when you look around, and, and you've been around for a long time, and you've been writing about this stuff for a long time, do you see any politicians that encourage you or that you think will bring Canada in a better direction beyond, I mean, you know, just hitting the brakes or pressing pause briefly? Well, I, Jason Kenney, he was a, a, certainly a colleague, if not a very a real close friend. He's certainly a longtime colleague of mine. He just got elected. He's the premier-elect in Alberta now, and I think we will probably find much more truly conservative policies from him. I haven't been following him that closely lately, but that's what I would expect. We certainly got a lot more of those from Stephen Harper when he was prime minister, and I think he was a very good prime minister. It's too bad he wasn't a little more jovial and telegenic, so to speak, when he was in front of the camera. But that's another sign of our times, by the way, and that's why I often... Uh, describe uh, modern politics as uh, what's happened to it as the Hollywoodization of politics. Our current prime minister is an example of that. So was President Obama, charming people with nice smiles and the gift of the gab. You know, and it, it seems like you can't be a successful politician today unless you have those those attributes. Uh, you know, that's where we are. And I think if you want to look for long term reasons for our current condition, uh, 
I think uh, the visual image, television, uh, the Internet, YouTube, call it what you want, has been a huge contributor to this idea of moving us as a people away from ideas and away from debate, intellectual debate, um, and, and, and away from print and books and, you know, holding a newspaper and rereading a sentence we didn't quite understand, but actually having it in our hands and reading it again until we educated ourselves thoroughly and understood what it meant. And then we're able to debate with our friends and neighbors about the issue. That time is fast disappearing, and we've gone to a to a society almost wholly grounded in the idea of the pleasant image. You know, there was a great book written about this a few years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I yeah. can't remember the name, Neil, name of the author now. Neil Postman. That's it. Neil Postman, you got a terrific little book. And I remember one of the things he said in there was, lots of us have seen pictures of Abraham Lincoln, right? Looking looking so grim and bearded and serious, you know, but we've never seen a picture of Abe Lincoln smiling. And one of the reasons is he didn't have to smile to be successful. What he had to do was think and write and speak. You know, today it's not the case. It's the other way around. You can't be successful without a real nice smile if you want to be a politician. It's all about charm and being telegenic. And I think it's a real loss for the whole conception of, of a bottom-up democracy in which you are expecting people to uh, relate to each other in a, in a serious um, moral and intellectual way in order to arrive at the kind of society that is worth sustaining. Well, that, that goes back pretty far, right? Some people would argue that Robert Stanfield lost the election to Pierre Trudeau because of that infamous picture of him fumbling the football. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So when you look at uh, Canada and you, you you refer to Canada's condition, I guess the million-dollar question would be, do you think that condition is terminal? Well, if you don't mind a long answer to that question, oh, which is a very ser- ser- serious one, it goes something like this. And in The Great Divide, I spell it out, but I'll give you the short version. Um, uh, I talk about the four stages of liberalism and because I believe that's what's happened in the West. There was a fellow named Francis Fukuyama some years ago. I think it was 2006 or something. He published a book about the end of history and all that sort of thing. And it was a catchy title, but of course it was silly because history never ends unless, you know, we end. Um, but I think he got it wrong. He was arguing that liberal democracy was the end of history and that it was a condition which everybody was happy with. Uh, and therefore it was the last stage. But I argue otherwise. I think liberal democracy is is finished. And we now have something I call libertarian socialism. And I just want to explain to your listeners how we got here uh, through these four stages of liberalism. The first stage I call virtue liberalism. And that was really 16th and 17th century liberalism. It was about people and settlers who came, say, to North America uh, because they wanted to be virtuous. They were trying to ex- escape the political and religious oppressions of the old world, and they came to the new world to get on that starting line I described, equal starting line. But they wanted to be free so they could be good. I mean, liberal comes from the word liberalis, which means is about freedom, after all. They wanted to be free so they could be good, so they could enjoy their communities and express their moral lives the way they they saw fit. And that lasted for a while, but it was 
slowly mutated into what I call rights and property liberalism, and that was basically under the influence of the philosopher John Locke. Now, John Locke was really the fellow whose thinking was behind the American Declaration of Independence, and it was also behind quite a bit of the thinking that, that trickled up into Canada in our own founding debates, which you can find in a book that I was the managing editor of and which was published in 1999 called Canada's Founding Debates. You'll see quite a bit of Locke in there, too. Now, that period was about individual rights, and it was really the beginning of the focus of the Western world on the idea that sovereignty resides in the individual. It's not about God anymore, and it's not about kings, and it's not about aristocrats and princes. It's about us as the people, as individuals. So Locke was kind of the the main impetus behind that, and of course that got into the whole business of other kinds of rights, like property rights, in particular economic rights, and the rights to fire your government if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Uh, the idea of the government as a contract, as opposed to an inherited tradition, was very powerful, and that went on for about a hundred and some odd years. Uh, but one of the difficulties that the West got into under the reign of this stage two uh, uh, rights and property liberalism was that people were free and they had property and some had money, but some didn't. Some were lazy and some were hardworking. Some were rich, some were poor. Some were smart, some were stupid. And what we were seeing was the beginnings of an underclass in all the Western democracies, slowly beginning to build this underclass. Oh, my goodness was the conclusion. Freedom is not enough. A foundation in freedom is not enough. Look at what's happening to our societies. We've got to do something about it if we want the perfect society. So this mutation led us into stage three, which is what I call equality liberalism. Suddenly, you know, the idea arose that we had to make people more equal by force, through the force, that is, of taxation and social policy. And this went on for quite a while, too, but it ended, us, ended uh, the West in a terrible contradiction, because how can you be maximally free and have maximum forced equality at the same time? You can't. It's a contradiction, and the West would eventually founder under such a profound contradiction. So stage four had to come about, and stage four was what I call libertarian socialism. And that that was brought about to resolve the contradiction I just described. How so? Well, you take the body politic and you divide it into two bodies, a physical body, which each of us has, and a public body, which each of us is part of. For the physical body, we give you all the freedom you want. You can have marijuana freedom, you can have abortion freedom, you can have homosexual freedom, you can have pornography freedom, you can have easy divorce freedom. I mean, all these things you can have. However, Everything else that we think we can reasonably equalize for everybody from coast to coast, we're going to do that through public policy, okay? In other words, we're going to have maximum freedom in the private body and maximum control through forced government policies in the public body. Right. And that's where we are today, and I call that libertarian socialism because it's not true libertarianism and it's not true socialism, but it's enough of both that we have this strange mix, which is where we are today. And you know what? People are happy with it because they confuse their personal sexual and bodily freedoms, you know, the right to abort my child if I feel like it, you know, the right to be gay if I feel like it, the right to smoke my drugs and blah, 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 
the right to watch porn whenever I want to, and so on. People feel maximally free today because of those private liberties. They don't understand that they were required at a price. It was a Faustian deal. If the state gave us that, we need to take our attention away from massive taxation, massive overregulation of every aspect of our lives, from waking up in the morning until we go to bed at night. It doesn't matter whether it's the mattress you're sleeping on or the uh, or the fireplace that you're trying to build in your house or whether or not you get to uh, where you get to put your garbage and, you know, you name it. Everything is regulated in Canada like it never was before. And when people say, well, what's next? I will say, well, I don't know, first of all. But I don't think anyone wants much else. The people are happy with this. Hmm. So when you look at Canadian public opinion, and this is the question I always find interesting, because you talked uh, in your in your in your books quite a lot about a silent majority. Do you still think there is a silent, reasonable majority on these issues? Or do you think um, to, to journey back to your very first metaphor that the country is flowing leftwards definitively? Well, it is, and I don't mean to to correct you here, but I spoke of the silenced majority. We are we have been silenced through uh, massive coast to coast institutionalization of political correctness. Um, this did not exist in the mid '90s when I was first writing those two main books, "The Trouble with Canada" and "The War Against the Family." There wasn't much political correctness yet, just a bit of it, as I do talk about it in the war against the family in particular, but now it's everywhere. Um, I remember reading a couple of weeks ago about some Canadian, uh, his name will come to me in a moment, but I, I don't have it on my, my lips right now, who was si- fined $52,000 for distributing, you know, anti-abortion literature in, in some public venue or other. Bill Watcott. That's it. What what God? That's it. And I said to myself, "Wow, I mean, where is this going next?" Well, I'll, I'll tell you where I think it's going. Although, hopefully, never to the extent that it went, say, in Eastern Europe or any of those totalitarian regimes. But it is totalitarian, totalitarian in its type. And um, I have talked to plenty of people who escaped from Eastern Europe when it was under totalitarian rule, the late George Jonas is one of those people. He was a wonderful man. You may remember, he used to publish a lot in the Post and the Globe and Mail. Yeah, his book Vengeance lo- was amazing. Lovely, lovely writer and thinker. And I had breakfast with him the year or so before he died. And I said, because he fled hungry when he was like 19 or something or 20. And I said, George, what was it like uh, to escape from a communist country and come to Canada? Now listen to what he said. It was so it hit me so profoundly. You know what he said? He said he said I felt like I was fleeing a disease, but it followed me. Wow. Yeah, wow well, is right. And what he meant was, he said, and he said it. He said, Bill, everything I'm hearing today, the words, the phrases, even the adjectives people are using to defend to defend this liberal what we call liberal liberalism in Canada today, is exactly what we heard on our way to communism. Same arguments, same logic, you know, the same justifications, the same silencing of the public of public speech, the same human rights tribunals, the same fining and re-education classes, and all that sort of thing. It's happening here. He said, but the people don't see it yet. 
So what did what did he predict would actually take place? This is the the really interesting question. Then is is you've made a lot of predictions that have come true in your book, uh, The Trouble of Canada, The War on the Family, your follow up to The Trouble on Canada. So do you have any more predictions for us on how you think things are going to unfold? I think uh, it's going to stay pretty much like it is for quite a while. As I said, I think I think the West has resolved its own internal contradiction and has arrived at a place, a kind of resting place, you might say, with which people are quite satisfied. And as long as we don't sink ourselves through catastrophic debt and inflation and uh, all that sort of thing, this can go on for a very long time. And one of the most, I think, uh, deplorable reasons for why it can go on for a very long time is because we've been slowly encroaching upon the lives of future generations uh, who... I mean by that through massive structural debt. I mean, all government debt is actually a form of deferred taxation. And we have to make sure we describe it that way. It is deferred taxation. Who's it being deferred to and, and whose shoulders is it, is it coming to rest on? Uh, a lot of it's coming to rest on uh, future generations of children who are not here to defend themselves against our appetites. Uh, and all the, almost all the Western countries are doing this, and uh, heavily and deeply, and more so each year. Uh, I don't know how long that can continue. It's possible it can continue for another couple of generations before there's some kind of reaction. But I don't think anyone knows how we're going to get out of it. Uh, and let me just give you a reason why. We live in a so-called democracy. <laughs> Uh, but have you ever heard of a party which actually had the nerve uh, to stand up in front of the Canadian public and say, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> what about we try to pay off our, our massive debt in the next 30 years? Here's a plan. All you're going to have to do is accept a lot more taxation for that 30 years. But by the end of it, we're going to be a happy people because we will no longer be victimizing the future and robbing them for to satisfy our own appetites. Wouldn't that be a great thing to do? I submit, I submit, Jonathan, that person or that party would never get elected. One of the reasons, going back to my first point, is that nobody's thinking about the good of society as a whole anymore. They're only thinking about their own good. And that's what they're voting for. And that's why we have this whole rotten business of politicians who are very good at sensing what the people want so that they can get their votes. So vote buying is the order of the day. The order of the day is not standing up as a, as a profoundly thoughtful orator, for example, and speaking to the people about what's good for Canada long term. You know, we're not interested in the next generation anymore. We're only interested in the next election. You know, and that's where we're at. It's, it's, I'm sorry to say it's depressing, but it's true. Right. And it's not going to change. And that's, by the way, why I never became a politician, even though hundreds of people have asked me why I didn't do that. And the reason is, I think that politics is downstream from culture. I always said, in fact, Jason Kenney once asked me, why, do, why didn't you ever go into politics? Look at all the great stuff you're writing. Excuse my flagrant self promotion here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I said, Jason, I said, listen. I said, if you gave me the keys today, this was like, you know, 15 years ago. Jason, by the way, I have a letter from him in my file 
I used to get hundreds of handwritten letters from people, which was wonderful. Now I only get emails. But um, he wrote to me and he said, he said, when I was in university, your dad gave me your Trouble with Canada book, he said. And when I began to read it, he said, I was outraged. But by the time I finished, I was converted. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> yeah, which was fun to hear. I was on some other tack there when I diverted to tell you that, and I forget what it was now. But, what? but oh yeah, so he asked me, what about, why didn't you go into politics? Because you wrote books like that. And I said, if you gave me the keys today and the power, call it absolute power if you want, to get the country exactly to exactly where I thought it should be in, in a totally healthy condition, I'm not convinced for a moment that the day I walked out of office and gave you back the keys, say, eight years from now, that it wouldn't snap like a bungee cord right back to where it is today. It's the culture that has to change. The politics follows that. And that's why I've been a writer all my adult life and not a politician. So I guess the uh, the final question would be, where can our listeners find your work? They can go to my website. It's my name, williamgardner.ca. I encourage them, of course, to go there. They'll find hundreds of essays on their favorite topics, and they'll find every one of my books, and all they do is click on the book, and they can go to Amazon right from my website. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my discussion with Bill Gardner. Thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 3 of The Culture Wars. Head over to thebridgehead.ca if you want to follow our other commentary or check out my other podcast. You can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope that you join us again next week.